All right, this is David Spence for energytradeoffs.com, and I'm here today with Eric Ortz. Eric is the Guardsmark Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics and a Professor of Management and the Director of the Initiative on Global Environmental Leadership at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, thanks for being here, Eric. Hi, David. Really happy to be here, too. We're going to talk today about a paper that Eric has with Brian Berkey entitled The Climate Imperative for Management. And it addresses um, issues associated with the ethical responsibilities of managers uh, in connection with the climate crisis. So, Eric, I'm going to start, as I usually do, by asking you to give me just sort of a short summary of the basic point of the paper. Well, thanks a lot. So uh, I would say the basic point of our paper is to first highlight the very fast-moving science of, uh, in the climate area that is indicating, I think as many people know, if they read the papers, that we have a significant amount of global heating occurring which is uh, of the atmosphere, which is contributing to climate disruption. We see a lot of symptoms of climate disruption already, but the major problem is that these are only symptoms of uh, what would be a very serious and, and, and likely catastrophic series of occurrences if we are not, as a global civilization, successful in controlling our greenhouse gas emissions. About one-third of the total greenhouse gas emissions comes from energy use and production. Um, about a quarter comes from agriculture and forestry, and then the rest are, are uh, categories such as transportation, uh, industrial production, and building use. So it's really everything that we're doing every day. And so the main point of the paper is to say, given this situation, we cannot just rely on the government to somehow uh, uh, parachute in and rescue everyone. Every business has to take a responsibility, what we call a climate imperative, to be part of the solution to this problem. We argue that really this is such an important problem and business is such a central component of the problem that many businesses really have to make this a central uh, ethical condition on their profit-making activity, especially for a certain category of companies which um, have, been, have been called the carbon majors. 50 private corporations, uh, and almost all of them are fossil fuel companies plus some uh, cement companies, uh, about 31 state-owned enterprises, then nine nation states who are sort of generally in the oil or fossil fuel business. So those uh, particular companies, the carbon majors, companies and firms, have to radically change. And if they don't, our argument is we really cannot avoid these catastrophic consequences that are coming down the pipe. The, the, kind, the categories of companies that you mentioned, the ones you called carbon majors, um, they exist in a competitive environment, right? And they have a collective action problem in which if they if somebody is the first mover, you probably saw the announcement from BP this week about their pledges to decarbonize in certain ways. If somebody's a first mover and they do something, you know, really radical, um, then others, if an, and the others don't go along, then they're risk they're really risking their own economic survival, are they not? I think that's basically right. So, uh, I, I mean, I think there are some uh, good 
signs in the market that some of the big companies realize this and are starting to are, are starting to try to change. Um, I think you're right that the if you think about it though, the number of companies and states that are involved here are not really a, a, a huge number. But I think it's possible you can imagine a world where the carbon majors would take this uh, responsibility seriously. They would meet together and would then lobby governments, uh, other businesses, and, and take a responsibility for this to change. And so what you'd really see would be a radical shift from uh, companies that are primarily in the fossil fuel industry, for example, and, and oil and gas production uh, with coal too, and then that they would be switching to really say, okay, we see the problem and we have to make a radical transformation of our company to be an energy services company that's going to radically expand our energy production in other areas that are, that are, that are climate neutral. Uh, the other part of this, just to add into your, to the, to the problem that they're facing is that investors are expecting them to return profits to the shareholders if it's a private corporation. So if you have a company that's making a radical switch, and that means there's a calculation that their share prices are going to radically decrease, some of those companies are going to come under pressure to shareholders saying, hey, you have to, uh, you have to go back to what, uh, what we want, and that is a short-term timerizing gain. So what you need then is also investors to be changing, and you, meet, you need the laws to allow companies to make this kind of a shift. So in the paper, you talk about um, the first best option as being a price on carbon, but that that doesn't seem to be happening. And so we have to start to look at second best options, which leads to the conclusion that there's an ethical obligation on the part of managers to, to take action in response to all this. And, and my first question was really about whether managers have an ethical obligation to go on their own. It sounds like what you're really looking for is um, – pressure, sort of collective pressure or managers taking responsibility to be political actors, uh, either to, to lobby government for policies that force the kind of action we need or organizers within their own industry to sort of voluntarily, collectively take the action that's necessary to, to move in the direction we need to move. Is that a fair summary? The paper as it's currently structured, maybe it will need a follow-up, basically is to say, here is an ethical imperative. This is, if this is a greater problem than any other kinds of issues that we're facing right now. And we really have to bring this front and center to the business consciousness. Let's say you're a big uh, oil company and you say, okay, I agree. I'm going to stop trying to deny the science, et cetera. We see what's happening. We understand that we're going to have to leave a lot of these assets in the ground. We understand that we have to stop uh, looking and exploring for new resources like in the Arctic, uh, under the oceans, etc. And we have to make this transition. But then in order to compete, they may well set, have to lobby governments. So right now, uh, right now, the, the contract, you know, right now we have exactly the opposite. The large oil companies in the world are actually lobbying the governments to retain relatively massive subsidies that they get from the government. Uh, for for uh, having extracting resources on government land, for example, uh, paying for uh, leases to to extract oil and other resources. So what you need to do is have a switch of that and to say, okay, we really do want to make a transition to renewable energy, et cetera, but you need to help us with some policy changes. 
allow us to move more quickly and easily uh, and profitably to a green energy production uh, approach, for example, and changes in other areas of industry, that would be positive. And we are in favor of that kind of change. I heard an interview recently with the outgoing CEO of BP, Bob Dudley. This was before they announced their new policy, their, dec- their new goals for sort of uh, reducing their emissions. Much of the interview concerned this issue, and, and he made a couple of points that are relevant to what you just said, I think. One was that uh, the world is, gonna, is still going to need more energy as poorer countries grow. And uh, he, he also underscored the point you made a second ago about uh, the profitability, the relative profitability of their traditional business versus the new energy business. Uh, they, he talked about their entry into wind and solar and other fields. Those, those fields don't have the margins that oil does. And so he claims, and this may be self-serving, but he claims that he talks to shareholders who say that, you know, you, you really ought to get into green energy. And he says, okay, but our dividends will go down. And he says they lose their enthusiasm at that point. So my, yeah. that's a long way of asking the question. And you know, These people also exist within a system of incentives, don't they? And uh, if investors don't push them and if customers don't stop buying their products, uh, it, it's all that much more difficult for them to make the kind of shift that you'd like them to make. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And there's no doubt that the system that we currently have in place is one that encourages uh, a profit maximizing approach. And one of the uh, one of the uh, one of the targets of our paper is to basically take out that approach because we look at two standard approaches that is that that are taught in many business schools. Uh, most of the uh, two, both of them, happen to come from authors who are at Harvard Business School. One is a, a theory by Michael Jensen that many people have adopted, which is if it's not a shareholder maximization theory, which is the standard theory actually still taught by most finance and accounting professors, et cetera. But if it's not a shareholder value maximization, it is at least a firm value maximization strategy over time. So that's one approach. And then another approach is something called a shared value approach by Michael Porter. And the idea there is that you, you are still maximizing value for the firm but you are also taking into account other local communities that are affected and you expand your scope somewhat. And part of our paper basically argues that is a, uh, that is not a sufficient approach to take in this situation. Profit can still be used, but we say that you must have a climate imperative as part of that. If you, if you continue to burn all the oil and gas and coal in the world, then the profits of companies and shareholders who in a world where you're selling all of that at a profit uh, is going to be more profitable for the shareholders at the same time as you're basically destroying the world. Like there's no other way to really conceive of this. So it's really that radical of a choice, at least as we analyze this situation. And so you're right to say shareholders are not going to like the idea of you just turning on a dime and saying, okay, we're gonna switch into renewable energy, but by the way, you're gonna take a big hit on your dividends and our share price is gonna go down. We're gonna have to leave a lot of these assets on the ground, but you have to have that kind of switch. And then you're right to also ask, okay, how do you change that world? And I'd like to point out one other main uh, participant here in the businesses, and that is the shareholders. And so investors have to change too. So our, our argument about a climate imperative is not only about 
the producers of the pollution, the carbon majors and other businesses that are productive in this, it's also the investment community. That's the other piece that has to change is that the system on the investor side has to start to put pressure on this uh, on these companies as well as the companies themselves starting to see that they have to change. Uh, and then the third point p- p- piece of that is, as you were indicating, I think gesturing to is the government. So we have to reverse this idea of any subsidies that you're paying for companies to continue to make money in, by destroying the planet have to be completely reversed. And then you also have to start to think about what kinds of incentives can you put in place for companies to make this transition. You mentioned in the paper the Jensen literature and the Porter approach to the sort of conceptualizing or framing these kinds of uh, management duties, management decisions. And so one way of thinking about the set of pressures you just outlined is that companies, particularly fossil fuel companies, are facing sort of incrementally increasing pressures associated with concern about climate from investors, from governments, uh, and from customers. It's possible that drastic action will happen. There'll be a a snowballing of divestment or a snowballing of regulation or a snowballing of consumer behavior. And so from the manager's point of view, you know, they're sort of seeing the possibility of this huge risk out there to to their current business model. And I'm wondering, is there any logic um, to thinking of this as a risk management strategy, or is that a, the very frame that you're sort of saying is not the one that works here? We need to think about it as purely an ethical duty. No, I think that there's a, I think that there's a lot of value in thinking about these problems from multiple perspectives. If you're a practical manager and you are, or an investor, uh, or you're, you're leading a firm, or you have some significant authority over these kinds of decisions, our argument in this paper is that there is an ethical duty just coming from the science and our current situation of expected consequences that you have to be doing something uh, serious on this issue. Then we also say there are relatively different levels of businesses. So we've been talking about the carbon majors who have the largest responsibility, but there's a lot of companies that are in the middle and they don't have as big of a a role in this, but they can actually be a part of of changing the market for this. So if you have, um, if you have a large company that says, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're part of the electric grid. We're going to basically switch entirely to uh, electric uh, renewable energy sources. One of the things, and this gets, I think, to your point, is like you have that, uh, you have that kind of process where um, that will start to ha- – there will be a tipping point at some stage where efficiencies will start to switch, behavior will start to switch. It becomes normal that you expect to be a climate-friendly place, right? So you – uh, lots of companies will start to do that. So you've, another example would be we're looking at the University of Pennsylvania. I think we're not the only institution looking at this is how much does everyone fly, right? So uh, t- just, just flying around the world, everyone flying around the world using fossil fuels is about 2% of the total greenhouse gas emissions. But lots of us, and this includes me, by the way, uh, don't always think about that, right? So, uh, uh, but if more and more people start to say, wait, do you really need to take a trip to do this conference? Or as you and I are doing right now, can you, can you have a conversation remotely where you're, not, where you're just using electricity? I, I think that it's not sufficient to say, well, look, let's not really worry about the ethical part of this because 
we can just take a long-term strategic point of view, that's not the only answer. Sometimes it's not a win-win. And in many of these cases, we really do need the ethical punch to say, look, this is really a priority. And even if this might cause some businesses to go out of, out of business, uh, or even if this requires you to make this big shift that we've been talking about, if you're a big oil company, you still have to ethically do this because of the consequences are so severe that if we don't, we really are risking our, our entire our civilization as we know it, really, if you look at what the serious consequences are. Yeah. Let me, let me ask one more question. I, I want to get your take on another dimension of this, and that's, it really sort of goes to the question of what, is, what sort of things should we worry about or what's the right thing to do? Um, there's a, there seems to be a split in the climate activism world uh, between people who see no future role for fossil fuels and those who see a potential future role for fossil fuels with carbon capture and sequestration. But another way of putting it is do we focus on the fuel mix or do we focus on emissions, right? Yeah. Um, so, for example, if, it's, if in the future it becomes most affordable to have a zero emission system that includes some fossil fuels, uh, um, that's better, all else equal, than a more expensive system without fossil fuels because the people with, less, with fewer dollars to spend would, would, have, would get more value uh, from the former rather than the latter. And so how do we decide what the ethical action is now when we don't know what future technology will hold for us in terms of the best possible solutions in the future? Well, I think that's a great question. And I think the answer for me is that you can do both things at the same time. So are there ways in which, for example, you could have a fossil fuel plant, let's say it's a gas plant, so it's already better than oil and coal, but it still has some emissions of carbon and you set up uh, a system by which you use the carbon that's being emitted in that system and you immediately are making from that carbon some other, uh, some other industrial use. So uh, one example is uh, cement. If we could make concrete, for example, uh, out of carbon, and that's a technology that is currently under development. If you took the carbon out of that gas plant and you put it into uh, concrete and then you're separate, you're, you're eliminate, you're reducing the amount of uh, greenhouse gases that you're producing from standard concrete and cement and you're, and you're using this uh, an alternative as a, as a sink, that would be positive. But I think you're right to say, to point out that there are lots of other solutions. So let's take the jet, uh, jet fuel problem. There are ways to try to think about how you can change the uh, fuel system for, for planes. I don't, think, I don't think anyone is suggesting we are going to go to a world of no air travel. But you can also then think about how can you really offset this significantly by uh, massively reforesting much of the planet, for example. We have to get serious about how we count these carbon offsets, but it seems that if we do it properly and we are really making sure that these are an offset, some of these other measures can help us get to the same uh, end point. If you start to change everyone's behavior so that they are thinking about the climate as a, as a central issue of how they're motivating their business and how they're doing investments and how we're living every day, 
I think you are going to start to see cumulative switches that at some point reverse the process so that we're really going to start solving the problem. Yeah, and on the air, the airline uh, point you made, uh, just the other day I got a tip from Jim Marston at Environmental Defense Fund by way of a common friend uh, about a website called goldstandard.org that you can go yeah. to measure your own carbon footprint and buy offsets, and the offsets are in the form of projects in the developing world. Um, and you can choose the ones you you you, you uh, buy from, and it's yeah. a, it's a great way to sort of for individuals to to do something. Um, yeah, and I think that that's a that's a that's a good example, and I believe that is one that I've heard also is one of the better ones. If more and more people are are acting this way and with this consciousness, you might have very you might have a faster response than you think. If if and that's a big if. If this can actually get communicated to people, people believe it, businesses believe it, and they start to act in the in a climate-friendly direction. Yeah, uh, very interesting. Well, thanks so much for sitting down to talk to us today, Eric. All right, thanks a lot for calling.